Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Trump campaign has launched a legal onslaught over vote counts in battleground states, filing at least six lawsuits since Election Day to challenge the ballot counts. Two suits have already been dismissed, and the question is whether any of the cases has a real chance to affect the final count. On Friday, Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel said the RNC has deployed legal teams to Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, citing concerns about so far unproven claims of voter fraud. We will fight every irregularity to the very last because every voter deserves their vote to be counted and they deserve to know whether or not these irregularities mean fraud. And we have to figure this out. But Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney said the president's team has not produced any evidence to back up his claims of fraud. I think what the president needs to do is frankly put his big boy pants on. He needs to acknowledge the fact that he lost and he needs to congratulate the winner just as Jimmy Carter did, just as George H.W. Bush did, and frankly, just as Al Gore did, and stop this and let us move forward as a country. My guest is election law expert Richard Brofault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, let's look at some of these cases, starting with Michigan. The Trump campaign tried to stop the count, and it claimed it hadn't been given meaningful access to the counting locations to observe the process. A judge already rejected that. Is that claim then dead? I think unless the campaign can provide evidence that shows that access was not provided, it is always a challenge to overturn the decision of the the judge who was on the scene. But unless they can actually provide evidence that they were somehow not given the access that the law entitles them to, and that that might have affected the count and that the result in the particular places which would have affected the overall count, I think it's, it's a very high hurdle for them to overcome. And another lawsuit that was dismissed was in Georgia. And there they claim that a Republican poll observer in Chatham County witnessed late ballots being illegally added to a stack of on-time absentee ballots. The judge just threw that out, saying there's no evidence. So that's also over. Right. And it's it's extremely unlikely, somewhere between very unlikely and almost nearly impossible never say never, for a higher-level court to overturn a a trial judge's or a district court judge's assessment of the evidence. If the judge said there's no evidence, that almost surely means there's no evidence that any higher court would be interested in. In Nevada, the lawsuit alleges that 10,000 votes were illegally cast by people who no longer reside in the state. If people no longer reside in the state, are they still allowed to vote if they intend to come back? I guess that depends on what you mean by reside. In other words, if somebody has temporarily moved because, for example, they want to go to uh, their vacation home, which is in a lower COVID area, they're still residents of the state. So, I mean, they have to first show that there are people who fall into any category of having moved, and then they've got to show that the person has actually relocated as opposed to staying temporarily somewhere else. People, it's a big deal to give up residency if they still maintain uh, an address, if they're paying their utility bills, 
and then they haven't left the state. I wonder how they even came up with that number. Like, what kind of research or what would have shown that? Right. These... I mean, I mean, that's the question. Is do they've been bringing a lot of lawsuits without much evidence, or maybe without any evidence? They've been they've been hurling a lot of accusations, but so far the courts who have been hearing these cases have been pretty unreceptive because they don't see any evidence. So I think they actually would have to come up with some specific people and show that those people are no longer there. And I haven't heard that yet. The cases that are getting the most attention are those in Pennsylvania for a couple of reasons. The importance of Pennsylvania as a swing state and the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court already decided in a four-to-four decision to leave in place the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision allowing ballots received three days after Election Day but postmarked by Election Day to be counted. State officials have told counties to separate out those late-arriving ballots. But some of the conservative justices left the door open to reconsidering the question after the election. The Trump campaign is also suing in Pennsylvania with an access argument again, saying their representatives were being denied reasonable access to monitor the counting of votes in Philadelphia. The vote counting is live streaming, so what kind of transparency are they looking for? Once again, you can make a statement, but then you actually have to say not only what you're looking for, but what you're legally entitled to. But they are entitled. Each state has has its own laws that uh, say who is supposed to be present uh, when votes are counted, typically. And I think this is the case in Pennsylvania. There should be representatives of both parties. My understanding is that that has been the case. The Trump campaign won a very minor victory when they were allowed to get a little bit closer to the action while still maintaining six feet of kind of COVID-required public health distance. So they did win a minor victory there in terms of how close they can be to to watch the vote counting. But uh, I don't think any court has said that there's been any situation in which there wasn't the required bipartisan observation of the vote counting. So, again, it's, it's one thing to say there needs to be more transparency. It's something else to say. The law requires the following, and they haven't given it to us. And that I have not heard. I've been talking to Columbia Law School professor Richard Brafault. Do you think the Pennsylvania Supreme Court went outside the bounds of its authority in granting that three-day extension? That turns a lot on what their authority is, to be honest, and that's actually in some ways the issue that is lurking beneath the surface for the Supreme Court if it's an issue the Supreme Court wants to take on. I don't think the Pennsylvania Supreme Court went beyond its authority as the highest court in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in charge of interpreting the statutes of the state in light of the state constitution. And the state constitution has a strong protection of the right to vote. So I don't think there is much doubt that in terms that they were within their bounds of looking at their statutes in light of the state constitution and in light of the situation, the COVID created, postal service delays created situation. The question that's been asked by a number of the justices and is being pressed by Republicans in the Trump campaign is, were they actually allowed to look at their state constitution or were they required to look only at the text of the state statute? Text of the state statute does set a specific deadline uh, by which uh, ballots must be received. The Pennsylvania court went further than that. The problem is the argument is being made that they're not that under the U.S. Constitution, the state legislature is the body that sets the rules for uh, the selection of presidential electors, and they set a specific deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots. And so therefore, as a matter of U.S. constitutional law, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court couldn't use its state constitution to you know, extend that deadline. That's the question that would go to the Supreme Court 
if the case goes to the Supreme Court. My understanding is that uh, Biden is winning Pennsylvania without actually having to look at those late arrived ballots. Uh, as you, you know, you may recall, uh, when the Supreme Court declined to intervene in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Attorney General and the Secretary of the Commonwealth right after that said, we are going to keep any late arriving ballots separate so that if the Supreme Court does intervene, the, we can we can count these these question ballots separately. And if there's, you know, and so it won't affect the ballots that did come in on time. And so um, it's not one reason the Supreme Court might not take the case, but we don't know, is it might not make a difference. The Trump campaign is asking for a recount in Wisconsin and possibly in Georgia. In most states, are recounts triggered automatically when there's a certain margin between the two candidates? Most states have an automatic recount rule. And sometimes it's 1%, and sometimes it's a half of a percent. Uh, but certainly right, certainly the numbers in Georgia are so close that uh, it would pass any rule uh, for an automatic recount. So who pays for the recounts? Well, uh, again, there are different states have different rules on this, and it actually turns on how close it is. So that if it's if it's very close, and I think the state pays for it, if it's if it's uh, if the results are wider than a certain margin, then I think the party asking for the recount pays for it. As far as my research has taken me, there's never been a recount that resulted in more than a couple of hundred votes either way. Typically, the result the numbers change very narrowly. As I recall, there was a recount in Wisconsin four years ago when Trump won by about 20,000 votes, and the recount resulted in giving him 130 votes more. So right now, the margin between Trump and Biden, it's conceivable that the numbers will move a little bit, but um, in the vast majority of recounts, the results don't change, especially with a margin as big as 20,000. Even in in, uh, the Bush v. Gore litigation in Florida uh, uh, 20 years ago, I think um, the margin, I think Bush's margin went from something like 1,700 votes to something like uh, 500 votes, uh, 500-something votes. The the numbers changed, but they they changed by a few hundred, um, even when there were 6 million votes cast. So would you characterize all the lawsuits as nuisance lawsuits or something more than a nuisance lawsuit? I think they are. Legally, I think they're nuisance lawsuits. I think their purpose is less about the law and more about public relations and about kind of maintaining um, the, the posture that there's something wrong here. So far, all of them have either been dismissed or the one victory that I'm aware of was on a very, very minor point that will have no effect on the outcome. But I think it's all about an, a project of trying to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election by filing as many lawsuits as they can, as they can. and maybe also delay. I mean, the law, the, if they can delay the count, they can maintain this, uh, the, the, the illusion that there's something wrong here and keep the, the turmoil going um, and maybe in the hope that something happens. But so far, um, there is, um, the lawsuits have been pretty much baseless and unsubstantiated. Uh, and the one time I think they, they won a victory was on a fairly minor point. Now, speaking of casting doubt, What's your reaction to President Trump's statement on Thursday night that there were illegal ballots and the election was being stolen? And can you lend any credence to his claims? You know, there, since he presented no evidence, I think the answer is no. I mean, there have been um, 
no evidence of, actually I don't want to say any illegal votes, but there's certainly been no evidence of any legal, uh, any illegal votes that come even remotely close to affecting the outcome in any state. I mean, I don't want to say that there was never any illegal votes cast on either side, but they have never, it's, um, the, camp, the Trump campaign has not come forward with evidence of any number of illegal votes uh, sufficient to affect the outcome in any state. CNN is reporting that Trump has told people he has no plans to concede, even if his path to victory appears to be blocked. Is there any requirement or necessity for a president to concede? No, it's just a matter of, uh, of courtesy and kind of the dignity of the system that a loser concedes. But no, he doesn't have to concede. If he loses, eventually the, each state will certify its results uh, of the election, and uh, the certified results will result in the, the selection of a set of electors. Uh, and on December 14th, those electors will vote. Um, and on January 6th, those electoral votes will be officially counted in Congress. And there's not much he can do. There's nothing he can do about that. We've been talking about how, you know, it's been taking a longer time for the states to count with all the mail-in voting. But tell us about December 8th and the safe harbor deadline and when we can stop being concerned about states sending in different ballots of electors. Right. So under... Um, under there's something called the Electoral Count Act, which Congress passed in the late 19th century to deal with disputed elections. Um, Congress has promised that if a state completes all of completes its count and and declares a result and does so under laws that existed before election day, if the state does all that by six days before its electors are scheduled to meet the Congress has promised it will honor that result. So um, all the electors are scheduled to meet on December 14th. That's the day Congress has set for the meeting of the Electoral College. So uh, six days before that is is December 8th, and that's become known as the Safe Harbor Day. Um, if by December 8th, a state has resolved all the disputes that may be, may be with respect to who won the presidential election in that state, and has declared a you know a certified winner, um, then the Congress has promised to honor that result. So finally, just give me your thoughts about the election and the allegations of fraud. Has the integrity of the system, has the confidence in the system been damaged? Those are two different questions. I think actually the integrity of the system has been maintained through the incredible work of state and county elections commissioners who have really been under incredible amounts of stress through this whole process. The, the shift to massive amounts of mail-in ballots is unprecedented. The attacks on the system are unprecedented. You know, the challenge to find poll workers and to run safe and sanitary polling stations is unprecedented. So I think actually it's a rickety system. We, we need a better system. But in fact, I think we are seeing that the system works the elections offices rose incredibly to the challenge. Has the legitimacy of the system been undermined? For sure. This relentless drumbeat of criticisms by the president and his allies, this constant insistence that there's fraud, surely many millions of Americans have been persuaded that there's something wrong here. And that's a terrible thing. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Rich. That's Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Trump campaign has filed lawsuits in the battleground states of Georgia, Nevada, Michigan and Pennsylvania and said it will seek a recount in Wisconsin. On Thursday night, President Trump once again alleged wide-scale voter fraud and a stolen election without proof, and he promised continued legal action. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. Trump's lawsuits have had very limited success. So far, none have altered the race's trajectory, and none of the remaining suits appear to be game-changers. They're mainly focused on some aspects of the processing of mail-in ballots, but not on enough ballots to alter the outcome of the race. Joining me is election law expert Justin Levitt, a professor at Loyola Law School. How would you characterize these lawsuits by the Trump campaign? I would say some of them look like they might have merit. The facts are a little bit hard to get your head around. Some of them look like they don't really have any merit at all. But all of them appear to be over really minor procedural things, like standing a bit closer when you can observe the count or having you know extra access to video feed that they didn't have before or something like that. Nothing that I've seen so far in any way meaningfully impugns the integrity of the count or in any way indicates any sort of capacity to meaningfully change the results. So then what's the strategy? You can look behind the lawsuits. What's the strategy of the Trump campaign here? It's hard to know. Part of it may be instinct. If a doctor would strike Donald Trump on the knee with a rubber mallet, he'd probably file a lawsuit. That's the auto response. Part of it may be that the president has tweeted, we're going to litigate, and a bunch of people are now scrambling to make that a reality. That wouldn't be the first time that a tweet or a promise at a rally turned into some fairly quixotic action. It might be that this is a mechanism to keep raising money. That would not be the first time that litigation, post-election litigation, even if it had no reasonable shot at winning, were used as a fundraising device. And it might be just a contribution to the messaging of the day, an attempt to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the elections because there are all these lawsuits, quote unquote. I want to say most legal observers who are looking at this don't think the lawsuits amount to much. But for the public, you can say we filed suit in X number of places. And perhaps that furthers the argument that he's attempting to make to delegitimize the election itself. I don't think it's working. And I'm not quite sure what he perceived the end game to be. I can't think of any other reason other than that, because the lawsuits, as is, not only don't they stand a chance of changing the results, they're not designed for that. So is there any problem in some of the lawsuits seeming to have a contradictory strategy where you're trying to stop the vote count in some of them and you're trying to get a recount in other states? Is there a contradictory strategy that makes a difference? The courts certainly don't like inconsistent claims. Now, it might well be that in one state, the allegation is that the count should stop. P.S. There has to be a why behind that. You can't just march into court and say, stop the count. 
there's got to be a reason, and there has been absolutely no reason to think that any of the counts should stop so far. State law requires that the ballots that arrive validly from valid voters be counted. So I want to be abundantly clear. Just wandering into court saying, stop the count, isn't a thing, and it's certainly not a thing that the courts will listen to or have listened to. It might be that the facts, the different facts, facts different than what we have now, could theoretically lead to different actions in different states. The courts don't look at strategy. They look at what they had in front of them. That said, it is difficult to discern what the strategy might be. And courts do care about saying inconsistent things in their own case or in similarly situated cases. And I haven't seen anything other than opportunism that amounts to any sort of rationale about why different votes need to be counted in some places and not in others. And by the way, I don't think the courts are listening to the tweets or to the press, the PR that the Trump campaign is trying to generate. Courts thus far this year have acted like courts. I haven't always agreed with them. Sometimes I think they get the law right. Sometimes I think they get the law wrong. Sometimes I have a different impression of the facts than they may have. But the courts have been remarkably consistent the entire year at waving off claims that are no more than wild gesticulation, all caps, exclamation point. Judges have been acting like judges. That's what we expect. But I think we should also expect that to continue. And so until there's a lawsuit that actually shows real facts that entitles the Trump campaign to some different outcome, I frankly don't think that the lawsuits are going to yield much. I want to talk about the some of the lawsuits and the allegations because there are several lawsuits in some states that are complaining about, as you mentioned, you know, the process for ballot observers or the way that ballot observers are getting to observe the counting. Do those go very far after the count? I mean, can they come back and say after the count is in and the state has been declared, well, we didn't get to watch this, so these don't count? No. The short version is you have to actually have evidence that the law was broken, that there was a statutory or constitutional violation, and that ballots were not counted that should have been or that that were counted that should not have been. And simply, I didn't get to stand close enough, isn't anything that actually jeopardizes the integrity of any of the ballots that have been cast. And that's part of why I say some of these cases on their own merits are probably worthwhile if they've been excluded from a particular location that they have a right to be in, then a court may well grant their right to be in that location. But the simple fact that um, there's been a minor procedural slip up in who's allowed to observe from where, and I want to be clear, I'm not sure in all of the cases that have been filed that there has been a slip up. Some of these have been factually contested where uh, the campaign has come in and said, we're not allowed in X place. And the city has said, you've been in X place for a couple of days. Of course, you're allowed there. It's fine. So I don't want to I don't want to assume the conclusion that just because they're saying they've been excluded, that's actually true. But even if it were true, that doesn't actually impugn the integrity of the ballots themselves. And so that is not, in fact, going to be accepted by court as a reason to stop the count, change the results or throw out any single ballot. In Georgia, they claim that a Republican poll observer in Chatham County witnessed late ballots being illegally added to a stack of on-time absentee ballots. Would that I think they said may have, and in those wiggle rules is a lot of um, meaning. 
So it is true that late ballots, ballots that arrive after the period designated by state law should not be counted. Um, it's also true that a handful of those is not going to either change or impugn the results as a whole. Um, but it is often the case that observers who arrive looking for misconduct misinterpret what they see. And so I don't take as a given. It might be that what they saw was somebody adding a ballot that should not have been added. That is possible. But when you see in a lawsuit may have or possibly, what that often means is I saw something I didn't like and now I'm going to make a big deal out of it. And that something I didn't like may or may not be an actual factual claim of legal wrongdoing. There are several suits in Pennsylvania, and the one that seems to be most concerning for Democrats is the Trump campaign asking to intervene at the Supreme Court in a case that's already been at the Supreme Court involving Pennsylvania adding some days to uh, the time that ballots can get in and still be counted. Um, and the Supreme Yeah, but so that is true um, that the Supreme Court, there is a case in the Supreme Court, and that makes that case particularly prominent. But I don't know that we know how many ballots are concerned in that case. And I have to say this really clearly. That case doesn't affect any ballot that was received by Tuesday, not a one. So I don't know what the results are. We still haven't done all the counting yet. But the most that that case could do is set aside ballots that had not arrived by Tuesday. And it might well be that the result of the election in Pennsylvania doesn't turn on ballots arrived after Tuesday. I also want to ask you about this, about the post office case. Judge Sullivan has is, is said something like, you know, I want to get them in to be counted. Can those ballots still be counted? I mean, suppose they find the ballots and they get them to the election places. In, in most states, it's going to be too late, isn't it, to get those? In many states, it will be too late now. Um, in some states, it's not. If the ballot was postmarked um, on time, different states, as you know, have different rules about when the ballots have to be received. We One of the things that I don't know, I think the post office may know, but hasn't been clear from the D.C. litigation so far, is how many ballots we're talking about. We know there were several hundred thousand nationwide that weren't processed as of a couple days before Election Day. But that's very different from thinking that there are a couple hundred thousand ballots outstanding, much less outstanding in any of the battleground states, much less outstanding in any of the battleground states where the deadline's already passed. Um, it may be a very small number that actually still remain in Postal Service custody uh, in any way impacting a state that has a deadline that's already passed. I just don't know. Um, and so the significance of the post office case, I think, turns quite a bit on how many ballots we're talking about. If it's a handful, it's not really going to matter. Justin, both sides set up legal war rooms to plan for a range of contingencies, and some leading law firms have been advising both the Trump and Biden campaigns. So what does it say that Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal lawyer, 
is the one out front on these lawsuits. I will say that of the many lawyers that the president has had involved in the White House and his personal capacity on his campaign, Rudy has not proven to be the most reliable um, for the president or for the public. And so, uh, and that's a shame, frankly. It, this is quite a different turn from his turn as mayor of New York, from his turn as the U.S. attorney, um, I would say, of late. Uh, it's not his legal acumen that most people are noticing when Rudy goes on TV or appears in court. Um, so I think that that doesn't necessarily reflect the quality or skill of other lawyers who may be working for the campaign. But I will say that the lawsuits the campaign has filed have been of markedly mixed quality. And I don't know whether that's Rudy or somebody else, but again, I haven't seen anything from the campaign that would indicate a lawsuit at the moment likely to change any of the results in any of the states that uh, still have results that are unclear. That's Justin Levitt of Loyola Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for joining us. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.